Will cryptocurrency replace the U.S. dollar? That and more today on The Grid. The Grid, a digital frontier. I pictured patriots as they moved throughout our country. Do they look like individuals or small business? Were the rallies like church? I keep dreaming of a world I hope to one day see. And then, today, I got in. Hello, fellow Americans. This is Chris Coleman, your host with the Kingdom Patriot Group. Welcome to The Grid, where faith, politics, and commerce intersect. America First Insurance Group. Insuring your life, protecting your liberty. It's so important for our audience to know that there's an insurance group out there that is working in such a way that any profits that they might donate are not going to go to liberal causes. America First Insurance Group. We have contact information in the show notes. So if you want to quote, check out our show notes. Welcome to this week's News in Review. Well, probably the number one story on the news wires this week involved Hunter Biden. Well, as we look at the bank records and they're being probed, two things are becoming crystal clear. The first, if this is really not about Hunter Biden, this is about the Biden family enterprise. Hunter is just the face of the crime family. And number two, it's clear that the White House and the deep state is obstructing this investigation. A whistleblower has come forward and he's trying to get protection just so he can talk in safety. There's going to be more to come on this. It is not going away anytime soon. Now, in Supreme Court news, we actually have two stories, and one is related to individual property and tax seizures. The Supreme Court is looking at a case of a 94-year-old woman who actually had her home seized by the government to satisfy a tax debt. But the problem is the value of the home far exceeded the debt itself. Well, the foundation of freedom in our country it can really be found in two places. Number one is actually the freedom of speech, but number two, in individual property ownership. In my opinion, Big Brother's gotten way too strong, way too draconian, and it's time the Supreme Court put the deep state back in its place. In the other Supreme Court story, the Supreme Court decided to leave kind of status quo in place regarding a lawsuit to the FDA and particularly with an abortion pill. At the heart of this lawsuit is if there's no federal right to abortion, then the FDA doesn't have the right to make abortion even through a pill available to everyone without congressional authority to do so. So this one, it, it's important to understand, this doesn't mean the Supreme Court is ruling on the side of the FDA. What the Supreme Court is doing is saying, we're going to let this play out through the courts, and we're not going to put an injunction in place while it happens. Okay, in some other stories that just make you shake your head, a female teacher was fired because she was forced to apologize after saying good afternoon, girls, to her students. Well, that was offensive to someone who didn't identify as a girl. She was not going to apologize. She was subsequently fired. And other crazy news like that, there's actually a report that was issued by the Geneva-based International Commission of Jurists in conjunction with the United Nations. They recommended decriminalizing the age of sexual consent. Okay, what, what does that mean? Well, what it means is, is that there no longer can be rape charges or any kind of problem with sex with minors. That's exactly what it means. It means that we're completely opening the door between children and adults having sexual intercourse. This is absolutely crazy. This is why we cannot subjugate ourselves to the United Nations 
or any other world power that does not share our same long-held traditional Judeo-Christian values. And speaking on deferring our authority to world organizations, the GOP has put forth a bill on ESG to try to change ESG banking rules to limit woke investment decisions. You remember we talked about this when we introduced ESG several weeks ago. Well, the GOP is taking this on, but this is why elections matter, folks. The House GOP can put forth bills like this all day long to try to limit the government's power, but that doesn't mean it's going to be signed off by the Senate and approved or signed into law by the president. That's why elections matter. And speaking of just foreign governments, I came across this. I'd heard this story a year ago, but it's gotten significant momentum. And it's the residents of Big Rapids, Michigan. So if you live in Michigan, you know that Big Rapids is the home to Ferris State University. It's kind of a small college town. Well, residents are furious because Michigan Democrats, which, by the way, the executive branch, judicial branch, and legislative branch in Michigan are all completely controlled by Democratic majorities. So the Michigan State Senate Appropriations Committee, they held a hearing and then they voted and they gave final approval to a $175 million taxpayer funding option for Goshen. That's the name of it, Goshen, G-O-T-I-O-N. It's a subsidiary of HIFI, a China-based high-tech organization that builds electric vehicle batteries. This is a 10-9 vote. Every committee Republican voted against it. And there were three Democrats that voted against it as well. But there's just not enough Republicans on that committee. So what we just said is we're taking Michigan tax dollars, we're giving $175 million to a Chinese company to set up shop. So just wrap your minds around that. Next, we move to Elon Musk. He has said that he's going to launch his own artificial intelligence platform after decrying the dangers of AI itself. Well, this makes sense to me because we have such concerns already over the wokeness of these current platforms. And this kind of thing always leads to one outcome. The government wants to control AI just as much as it wants to control speech. If government controls AI, then government controls the input of AI. And then it will only take one generation for the truth to be eliminated. And that, folks, is how you have the modern-day manifestation of the book 1984 and the Ministry of Truth. Also, some disturbing news I just saw. The U.S. Embassy in Sudan has been ordered to evacuate because of the rise of instability and violence in the region. Let's remember to pray for those in Sudan. It's a country that has been long torn with violence and war. I heard this conversation of the weekend. I thought it was, it was really helpful to bring clarity to this issue, specifically around transgender ideology. So you will hear me time and time again say that constitutionally, legally, I have no issue at all if a man wants to identify as a woman. Biblically, I do have an issue with it because the Lord is very clear when it comes to sex and gender that he made them male and female but I'm only talking constitutionally and legally. And here's where my issues began, and it's really twofold. The first part of this, if you're a male and you identify as a female, that does not make you a female. You may want to be, you may desire to be. You may actually think that you are a female. You may feel from the depths of your being that you are female. That does not change the unwavering biological fact that you are male. Chromosomes and DNA tell the truth. So I do have a huge problem being told that I have to say and agree and espouse and champion the fact that you're a female when biologically it's not true. The second issue I have is related to the first. This is an agenda, a social contagion type of movement. What we're seeing is just the natural progression that once this movement transitioned from this is how I feel to this is what I am, 
that we knew there would be war over this issue, particularly in sports. Men, biological men, identifying as female, are invading and destroying the integrity of women's sports. I keep hearing, well, if the male takes enough female hormones and she believes or he believes that she, he is a she, then she's fine to compete with other women. All I have to say this, this is it's either all fair or not, or it's all right or wrong. You can't have it both ways. Well, I heard the best argument for this over the weekend. The question was posed to a transgender individual. If Mike Tyson decided to be identified as a female, would he be allowed to step in the boxing ring with a woman? The transgender responded, well, no, that of course not. That's crazy. That's going way too far. And that, folks, shows you the lunacy, the hypocrisy, and the inconsistency of this social contagion movement. Mike Tyson can take all the female hormones he wants. He could surgically remove those parts of his body that make him male. And he still, in spite of that, likely would put a female in the hospital or actually kill them in a boxing ring. He is that strong. So you can't have it both ways. And I, I apologize for the diatribe this morning on this, but I just want to bring some common sense to the conversation. If Mike Tyson can't step in the ring with a woman, if he identifies as a female, then no one should be able to because it just is lunacy. Lastly, I just started listening to an audiobook titled The Great Reset by Mark Morano. I listened to it on audible.com, but you can also get in hardback or paper. I haven't gotten very far. Highly recommend this. This really gives you some insight and um, I would say foundations of what we've been seeing for the last couple of years. And it started a long time ago. Highly recommend it. Folks, for this week's news and review, that's a wrap. Today, we have a very special guest with us. He is an unashamed Christian, certified pickleball instructor, accomplished musician, and the founder of Blue Polo Media. And relevant to today's discussion, he's also the host of the podcast, The Bitcoin Effect, and he's also the face and voice behind 99Bitcoins, the organization dedicated to help translating and training novices in all things Bitcoin. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like you to meet Nate Martin. Welcome, Nate. Thank you. I appreciate that. Always good to see you. It's been a while. It has been a while. And uh, uh, we need to get together more often, not just for a podcast or your expertise. But today, I have to admit, I'm picking your brain for your expertise. Well, uh, pick what you can. We'll see what we got. Well, Nate, for our audience today, I thought that we could start a little bit with just exactly what is digital currency? Everybody hears the term Bitcoin, but they don't really know what that means. And as we'll talk about a little later in a few minutes, there is some things that have come to light that people are asking questions about, like, what is the Fed doing? How does that relate to digital currency? But I thought maybe we could just start with uh, assuming that everyone is like me, and that is I can spell cryptocurrency, I can spell digital currency, but that's about as much as I know. So if you are going to have 10 minutes or less to educate me, go for it. Well, we have to begin with the, the basic question, what is money? And money is an agreed upon representation of value, right? Absolutely. And okay, so that being the case, whether a currency or an asset is valuable to one person versus another person, that's what's important. And whether that's paper or whether that's a, a rock like gold or whether that is a digital representation on a ledger, if you and I agree that that is valuable and you assume that you can 
extract the same amount of value from that marker with someone else as I gave to you, and then we have money. So digital currency, it just involves a digital marker of a, a store of value that we have earned and we want to use later. It's a battery. So in essence, it's it's just a digital version. So I'm not gonna, I can't go to the store, for instance, and and it got a piece of paper with me. This is this is a number that appears on a computer screen or on a device or something else. It's completely in a digital format, but it's still being used as value to buy and sell and so forth. Is that is that what you're saying? Exactly. As opposed to a twenty dollar bill, you just entering twenty dollars, you know, off of your credit card for that matter. Uh, a credit card is nothing, nothing more than digital currency because all you're doing is is transacting on a ledger that neither one of you have in in, in your possession. And that ledger says, okay, Chris no longer has $20 and this grocery store now has that $20. It's no different. So that's interesting. I, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, truly credit cards and debit cards are just a, they're another form of cashless society, i.e. digital currency. But as far as actual a currency that's not tied to my personal bank account, was Bitcoin the first one that really kind of came out of the woodwork, so to speak, and tied on themselves as a digital currency? Bitcoin was the first one that worked. Ah. There were other attempts at digital currency, but the problem was always twofold. And one was its centralization, meaning that you had to trust the operator of the currency itself, and the double spend problem. And in a nutshell, what the double spend problem is this. On a computer, I can take a document, copy it, and paste it somewhere else, and now there's two copies of the same document, but you can't tell one from the other. Okay, so the double spend problem was solved by Bitcoin. And so was the centralization model that we've always seen and continue to see in any government-backed currency. So those two issues, the, the, just by themselves, and there are more attributes that we'll probably get into during this conversation of Bitcoin that make it so much more a solid money than anything that we've ever seen. That's just my humble but accurate opinion on that. So, well, uh, so the difference between Bitcoin and other currencies is the fact that the problems were solved with different uh, crypto, uh, cryptography and, the, the, and decentralization are actually two different technologies that were melded together in order to create Bitcoin. It's, it's not just one technology. It's the melding of two or three different technologies that created this decentralized, uh, fungible, and durable, and non-counterfeitable, for lack of a better term, uh, um, store of value. So let me ask a couple of probing questions then. I'm assuming that Bitcoin, how they solved the copying problem is they have advanced uh, I think you use the word cryptography, advanced security measures that don't allow the ability to copy and double spend. Is, is that correct? Uh, well, part of that is the fact that there are now thousands of computers that all have a digital copy of the entire Bitcoin ledger. And so if someone tries to spend something that is not in that account, then all of those nodes is what they're called. All of those computers are going to recognize that and go, no, that's not a valid transaction and they'll kick it out. Interesting. Okay, so it is the, it's the thousands of basically auditors, okay? The Bitcoin network is audited every 10 minutes by thousands of computers around the world to the point where it's effectively impossible to counterfeit Bitcoin. 
So as you describe that, Nate, it sounds like, yes, solving the ability or the temptation to double spend sounds like it walks hand in hand with the fact that it sounds very decentralized. It's extremely decentralized. It's actually the first decentralized network and the largest actually decentralized network that on the planet today. Uh, when you talk about thousands of, of nodes, which are basically the referees, and then you have, again, thousands of miners, which are fighting for the right to write the next page of the digital ledger. If you want to get into that so that we can clarify it, we can. Then you have a game theory, which says we don't want anybody to be able to counterfeit or cheat the system because then we lose the value that we own by maintaining the Bitcoin that we have. So does that mean if I own Bitcoin, every one of those thousand computers that has a copy of the ledger says Chris Holman owns that number. So if somebody else tries to spend it, it just doesn't allow it? Right. Well, what, it's, uh, what it says is that this account number, you don't have to have an ID to, to get a Bitcoin account. All you have to do is open up a wallet. Gotcha. And that's just a computer program. Uh, and that wallet doesn't actually hold Bitcoin. It holds your public key, which is what you want everybody to know so that they can deposit Bitcoin into your account and your private key, which is your signature. That is a secret that you hold. That is the only thing that gives access to distribute from that account. So it's a two key system, public key, which you want, every, which you don't care if everybody knows because all that can happen there is that it goes into that account and your private key, which is what you hold secret so that you can actually spend money from that account. And the distributed ledger actually knows when a transaction is signed by that private key so that you can actually spend that money. So let me ask a question that I think I already know the answer to. Bitcoin is a currency that just, whenever we want, they just make more Bitcoin numbers, correct? It can dilute the value. Uh, it's just like printed currency. Someone can just make more Bitcoin numbers just completely out of the blue. Is, is that correct or is that false? <laughs> That's the dollar. <laughs> I, I, was, I was baiting you a little bit. No, thank you for that softball question. Yes, absolutely. That is the dollar. No, Bitcoin actually, at its inception in 2009, Bitcoin is created when a miner, which is a computer, um, actually validates transactions and puts it into the next page, for lack of a, to try to simplify the term. Uh, we call it a block, into the next block of transactions. And those, those transactions are confirmed by the rest of those nodes, those computers in the network as being valid. And then that block is locked in on top of the previous block. Then the reward was, in 2009, 50 Bitcoins to the miner that actually created that page or verified that page. Now, over the period of time, the Bitcoin reward for actually mining a block has been cut in half every about four years. There's a specific number of blocks to where there's a halving, H-A-L-V-I-N-G, of the Bitcoin reward so that we know exactly how many Bitcoin per day are actually being injected into the Bitcoin economy. And right now, it's six and a half, and uh, later on next year, it's going to be halved again to three and a quarter. So there will be 3.25 Bitcoin awarded to the miner that creates a new page on average about every 10 minutes, because that is what the difficulty uh, adjustment uh, allows for, they, or tries to regulate is how much time in between each block. And it's about 10 minutes. So I don't know, I'm not an economist, nor am I a Fed chair, but it sounds like to me, 
by a very controlled, systematic way of introducing new Bitcoin, that it is a natural hedge from diluting a currency like you would see, with, well, with really any currency of any government when they just want to start printing money. Because it sounds like that's... Yeah, it eliminates the possibility. And so by definition, it is uh, verifiably scarce because there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin ever mined. And as it stands today, there have been over 19 million Bitcoin already mined. So most of it's already in the Bitcoin economy. So there's not going to be a whole lot more that's going to be introduced. As a matter of fact, the last fraction of a Bitcoin that will be rewarded to a miner will be somewhere near the year 2140. And it will be uh, significantly less than one Bitcoin that's going, going to be rewarded to that miner. There is a slowing of the introduction of Bitcoin, and they did it on purpose so that it can't be inflated in the way that fiat currencies currently are. So that's fascinating to me. Is Bitcoin used today? And I'm, I'm going to focus on Bitcoin because I know there's other cryptocurrencies. I, I know you and I have talked in the past. They're bad copies of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, well, I guess I can't really say the gold standard because people might get the wrong idea, but it is the one that has solved that problem. It is the original. Yeah, it is the original, and it's still the most robustly decentralized network in the world. Right. So just in Bitcoin in general, people, there's, there's investors, there's people who invest and buy Bitcoin, hoping the value will go up. But is it actually being used today to buy and sell goods and services? Oh, I do. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm going to a Bitcoin conference next month, the tickets for which I bought with Bitcoin. And any more, you take a look at now, um, there's one country that's been on, in the spotlight, which is El Salvador, which actually has introduced Bitcoin as not an official currency. That's the, that's the wrong way to put it. But alternative, maybe? It's an alternative currency to the El Salvadorian dollar, which is based on the U.S. dollar, but Bitcoin was introduced to El Salvador as a currency that you can use. And using the Lightning Network, which is a layer two on top of, of the Bitcoin network itself, I don't want to get too technical because I know that many of your listeners are probably just hearing about all this stuff for the first time. So I apologize if I'm getting a little bit too technical. But the Lightning Network allows for all, nearly free and immediate transference of Bitcoin from one person's possession to another. So I think this gives us a good introduction to Bitcoin. When we return, I want to talk about what the U.S. government is doing and concerns that you may have. Folks, how can you get involved with the Kingdom Patriot Group? So glad that you asked. The first thing is to follow and like The Grid on your favorite podcast platform. Secondly, go to our website at kingdompatriot.us. And when the window pops up, put in your name and email address so that we can keep you informed of the issues that are important to you. And lastly, you can become an actual member in which you pay $9.99 a month or $99 a year. And with that membership, you get our free vaccine religious exemption toolkit that we've prepared. You get digital copies of the U.S. Declaration of Independence and Constitution. And finally, you also get a digital copy of the book Phenomenal Christianity, Kingdom Patriot Edition. We've structured ourselves to be a for-profit organization so that the government cannot tell us what we can and cannot talk about. But in order to do that, we need your help. Follow, like, share, subscribe, and become a member of the Kingdom Patriot Group so that you can join the fight for faith and freedom.
Okay, now that we're yeah. back. <laughs> so Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, recently announced he made some announcements regarding the United States and digital currency that's going to start phase in. It sounds like it would be completed in July. How familiar are you with that announcement and what concerns do you have? I'm concerned in some regard. Uh, I'm not concerned in the immediate future. It's not like a switch that can be turned on and all of a sudden we have a digital currency okay. because the Constitution doesn't allow for that. But what has already occurred, and I just had it up here, but there's already a system in place that they're going to enact in July, which is kind of going to be the introduction of the central bank digital currency or CBDC, which many of you may have seen in the news. What is a CBDC? And all that simply means is central bank digital currency. And with as many community and regional banks as we have, it makes it very difficult for the central bank to be able to just implement that because all of a sudden they're out of business. They have no reason to exist because if I can just simply have an account myself with the Federal Reserve, then there's really no reason for banks to exist at all. Fortunately, the, there's, there's no system in place that actually would allow for that in the United States. But what you've seen, and we'll go back to the uh, Silicon Valley Bank issue, is the uh, manipulation of interest rates for a bank that suddenly, uh, I'm going to go back to uh, Silicon Valley Bank. You almost had it right a couple of episodes ago and you said- Almost, I love that. Okay, you almost had it right. But there's, there's one variable that you didn't include in your talk about how, why Silicon Valley Bank actually closed. And part of it was the manipulation of interest rates. And here's how. Silicon Valley Bank had a sudden huge influx of billions of dollars into its coffers. And as interest rates are rising, there's less of demand for people to borrow money from a bank. So here they have these billions of dollars from Coinbase and, and other um, crypto-friendly organizations. Uh, Coinbase, by the way, had 3.3, no, it was uh, Circle and Coinbase. They had $3.3 billion that they deposited with Silicon Valley Bank. Wow. Okay. And that's just one of their customers. And so here they have all of this cash that they can't keep because by banking regulations, they, they have to have it in some store of value. And the store of value for banks is U.S. Treasuries. And so they've got all this money that they can't lend out. So they've got to be able to park that money somewhere. And they parked it in U.S. Treasuries, two and 10-year Treasuries. Well, what happens to interest rates? If interest rates go up, what happens to the actual capital value of those Treasuries? Absolutely. There's an inverse relationship and it declines. They go down. Okay, and so what happens to their books is suddenly SVB looks insolvent because the value of their holdings is less than the amount of money that they can actually hand that they uh, than um, than their deposits. That's a paper transaction, and so FDIC comes in and says, "You're insolvent. We're going to take over." Yes, they made some bad bets. They absolutely made some bad bets. But one of the bad bets that they made was U.S. Treasuries. Because all of a sudden they have no capital, they have less capital value in those treasuries, and they're not and they're not solvent on paper. Yeah, as I as I understood it, the yeah, there's absolutely an inverse relationship between treasuries or bonds, even um, any right. any debt instrument in which the interest rate starts rising, the value of the instrument declines. But until you actually sell that instrument, it's just an unrealized gain or loss on your accounting books. But as I understand it, as, as there started to be a run on the bank because they didn't have the cash, they had to sell those and actually realize the loss. That loss, yeah. 
Yeah, because they were they were getting, I think, $42 billion in withdrawals over a 24-hour period of time. Yeah, crazy numbers. You know, and you add that to Signature Bank, you add that to, uh, there was one other one, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But what happens to a community bank or a regional bank when you have interest rates going up so that your deposits you can't lend out because there's no demand for it? So you have to park it in treasuries and then interest rates go up again. And now those treasuries don't have the same capital value. Suddenly community and regional banks are going to be dropping like flies and all of our money in private banks are going to be centralized to the national banks, which only makes it easier to create a central bank digital currency using those banks. So that's interesting because I, you and I know what the government bails out, the government controls. Yes. Um, and we're talking about banks today, but you can go back and look at savings and loans years and years, decades ago. You can look at the auto industry back uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Whenever they come to bail someone out, there is a price to pay to do that. And that price is control and control and regulation. And so I think, you know, as Jerome Powell has talked about this, there's a lot of uh, a lot of folks out there in the stratosphere that are talking about the cashless way, for instance, the parks are going to uh, be, take money. So you can no longer, you know, go to a, a national park and pay money. You're going to have to uh, use something cashless and not, not a Bitcoin or whatever, which to me is pretty benign. That doesn't get me too fired up. What I'm more concerned about is, is really, is that the gateway to lead to some of the things you're talking about? Unfortunately, we've lost our connection with Nate, which is really okay since that's about all the time we have today. Hopefully you have a better understanding regarding the what when it comes to digital currency and specifically Bitcoin. Next week, we will talk about the dangers and what the implementation of a federal digital currency system would actually mean to you and I. Till next time. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Grid. And special thanks to our sponsor, America First Insurance Group. Be sure to visit our website at kingdompatriot.us to join the movement of faith and freedom. That's kingdompatriot.us. Join today so that together we can make a difference. Your membership is appreciated, your input is valued, and your voice is needed. I'm Chris Kuhlman, and I am a Kingdom Patriot.